Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. We're covering August 2019 this month. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by CJ. We're continuing our review of the summer with developments to mention in areas like asylum, litigation costs, um, citizenship deprivation and human trafficking. And we're also going to discuss new visas for scientists and entrepreneurs. If you want to claim CPD points for reading the material and listening to this podcast, then sign up at www.freemovement.org.uk slash training, and we've got over 100 CPD hours of training material now available. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We spent most of our last episode talking about case law, so let's start this one off with a little bit about immigration policy, just to mix things up. There has been a fair bit of change in the air. The Biggest announcements I think I saw in August was a new visa route for scientists and researchers that the Prime Minister announced. It's really just an expansion of the existing Tier 1 exceptional talent route, but that could be significant enough in itself, right? If they, some of the ideas were a wider range of organisations being able to endorse people for an exceptional talent visa, and some people might be able to qualify one for one of these visas without any endorsements. And then more recently, I think there's been some discussion of immigration policy at the Conservative Party conference that you were you were paying attention to. Yeah, so the the mood music on on immigration does seem to have sort of improved since um, since the demise of of, um, Theresa May as prime minister. Um, But as you say, that the the actual changes that they're um, sort of they're they're not they're not even making these; they're just kind of trailing them, aren't they? They're saying this is stuff that they're thinking about doing rather than that they actually are doing. Yeah, there's not been nothing firm or no changes to the rules. It's just a speech and a, a Home Office press release at this stage. Yeah, it's kind of like consultation, but without a consultation paper, even as well, isn't it? And um, so it, it's kind of to be welcomed that you know that we are hearing some positive noises about the, the benefits of immigration, but the actual details don't really add up to much when you you look at it. Um, and it kind of, as you say, it matches with other things that we've been hearing more recently, where apparently the, the white paper um, on immigration, which was released under um, Theresa May, has basically been torn up. The Home Office is now looking at um, a more fundamental review of, of the immigration system. Um, and I sort of always reluctant to, to to welcome things. That I'm you know, just a bit just a bit skeptical of the Home Office doing anything at the moment. Um, but uh, you know that the white paper wasn't great. It was basically tweaking the existing system and and bringing um, EU citizens who, who enter in future into it. And there certainly is scope for a much more radical overhaul of things. Um, changes to the family migration route, in particular, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see um, whether all that actually matches within this title they keep on going about the sort of australian points-based system and so on i who only knows but uh but you know it, it's only interesting times and um you know for, for lobbyists and campaigners there does feel like there's a bit of kind of space and room to, to sort of make proposals at the moment yeah definitely as you say the white paper being a dead duck was something that came out of the conservative party conference and the the you know, white paper is out, the points-based system is in, but what they mean by points-based system, as I think we said in the last podcast, could be almost anything. Yeah, I, I, it's sort of, if, if listeners can hear us hitting our heads against desks and stuff on the on the podcast now, then that's that's what that sound is. Yeah, the I mean, the last, I suppose, shake-up of the visa system that we have had was in March when the innovator visas came in to replace Tier 1 Entrepreneur, and you know talk about being nervous of the home office doing anything you know we, we 
published rakes of criticism of this new v- the, the, the design of this new visa lots of different commentators saying that the whole thing was was heading for a fall we've now had some statistics on how the innovative visa has gone showing that there were one two three four applicants for innovative visas in its first three months so that's uh q2 2019 four isn't very good is it <laughs> It's not great, is it? And to be fair, you'd you'd expect with you know the, the changes to this route were quite radical, and you'd expect there to be a sort of slow initial take up. But you know, we've said this on the blog, and a number of our contribute contributors have said it as well. It's kind of it's hard to see how this is going to work, and a sort of serious entrepreneur or innovator. Um, just isn't going to be that interested in one of these visas because um, because of the way they're structured and designed. And the, the sort of fundamental problem seems to be that civil servants think they can centrally plan immigration stuff and, and they just can't. They're just not very good at it, um, which doesn't necessarily bode well for you know the, the Australian points-based system that we're apparently on the verge of, of having unveiled. Certainly not. Well, uh, thanks for indulging my pet subject of innovator visas. Uh, let's turn to one of your pet subjects, which is uh, deprivation of citizenship. There was a case about this, about a young man called Ashraf Islam, who ran off to join ISIS in Syria, and the Home Office took away his British citizenship. The citation 2019 EWHC 2169 admin. One of the interesting aspects about this case was that it was it was about deprivation of citizenship, but it was in the high court, whereas usually challenges to deprivation of citizenship are in the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, uh, SIAC. So how was, why was this one in the high court then? Yeah, I'm not sure I can actually answer that, frankly. It's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's a slightly confusing judgment. I think ultimately it's, it's, it's kind of procedural, but touches on the substance, but it, it's, not a, it's not a proper appeal um, in the same way that a SIAC um, case would be. So the judge was looking at the lawfulness of the way things had been done, as opposed to reviewing whether it was the, the right decision on the facts of this case. Um, although the judge does seem to cross the line between those two those two different functions a few times in some of the some of the things he looks at and some things he says um and it, it's yeah it, the, the, we're seeing a lot of these deprivation cases at the moment because of um what happened in syria and and the, the rise of isis and their their sort of international recruitment um the, the, the big question is is, is is it really appropriate to be taking away citizenship from people who born and grown up in the uk and were radicalized in this country and then effectively fobbing them off on other countries to, to which they've got no genuine connection other than through their parents' nationality. And, um, yeah, I suppose this guy on the facts, it sounds like he might not be going anywhere because he's he's been imprisoned um, some, somewhere and probably isn't going anywhere, basically. But um, it's it looks like it's another Bangladeshi case. And, you know, why should Bangladesh be forced to accept um, people who who have have become you know radicalized and have have engaged in these horrendous activities and basically on our watch in this country um it, it, it's not it's not very um it's not very good public policy no it's it's dumping your problems on other countries in a bid to look tough uh for uh, for political reasons it it appears and and you as you say there's been quite a few we will look out for future ones 
Let's talk about a trafficking case. There was one worth highlighting called O versus O versus R, O versus Regina. I don't know how criminal citations work, uh, but the citation is 2019 EWCA CRIM 1389, uh, Court of Appeal Criminal Division. And it was about someone who was trafficked to the UK. They were caught and convicted of using a fake ID card to enter the country. What's interesting about it is that the conviction was back in 2008, but the Court of Appeal overturned it in this recent judgment over a decade later, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good decision for this person, but also for others in a similar situation, because we we know that um, you know, these days you'd hope that this wouldn't happen, but the, the, even now there seem to be um, cases that sort of slip through where people are um, being prosecuted and convicted in inappropriate circumstances where we've had repeated guidance from the court saying it shouldn't happen. Um, but back, back in sort of 2008, um, you know, we hadn't had that string of, of, of case, um, cases from the Court of Appeal and, and so on. There wasn't the same publicity. Um, but this case goes to show that even though that awareness wasn't there and you know, the, therefore the risk of conviction was much higher, it's not too late to get those overturned. And the same law essentially applied then as it does now. Um, and so you know, out-of-time appeals against conviction um, can, can succeed. Turning to asylum, we had a shocking report from a barrister named Rahana Popal about a client of hers. The judge, an LGBT client, and the judge found that her client couldn't possibly be gay because he didn't come across as effeminate, essentially. Uh, The judge also said that he didn't have a gay demeanour. Uh, this case made national headlines after we reported it, and uh, thankfully, as it turns out, the determination was overturned by the upper tribunal, but I think shows that Stone Age attitudes still persist in some pockets of the judiciary. Unless uh, unless judges do do this in practice, Colin, do they sort of just sit there in the tribunal and look at people and say, oh, that's a gay demeanor that's not a gay demeanor well i think good judges don't um but the 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 saving grace in a way in this case is that um the judge actually you know said it out loud and wrote it down and the the fear is that there are judges out there in a sort of you know by its nature an unknown number of them who make these kind of judgment calls based on stereotypes but they're aware that um you know, it doesn't look good if it's written down in black and white. And so they, they don't state those reasons. They come up with other excuses to cover um, cover the real reasons instead. And one suspects that, yeah, that does happen, but we just don't know how often. And it's um, and this was a particularly shocking case. Um, I, yeah, it's just, just the mind boggles, frankly. Um, but, you know, at least the judge had had the honesty to, to write it down and therefore it was capable of being appealed and the fear is that in other cases, um, you know, this kind of goes on below the surface, so to speak. Absolutely. Tip of the iceberg, potentially. Just a quick note on asylum appeals. I had been seeing a few references to digital asylum appeals, which are being piloted at the moment. So I asked the courts and tribunal service for more information. And they told me that asylum appeals will go online at all tribunal hearing centres from January 2020. Now, as I understand that this is just about filing the paperwork and the documents and so on, not that the actual hearing would be over video link, and it is only for cases 
where the appellant is represented, so not for unrepresented asylum appeals. I, I don't know. They, they do say there it's been piloted in London and, and several other centres. I don't know if you've had any of these digital asylum cases yourself. I had I had an usher take me to one side and sort of talk me through the process um, a few weeks ago, and it, it all looked very whizzy. But I did sort of find myself thinking afterwards, I'm not quite sure how this makes anything better. It makes it more digital, and yeah, we all think we are more in favour of online. We run this website for goodness' sake, but um, yeah, I'm not actually sure what difference it's really going to make in real life. And maybe, maybe initially it won't, but some kind of benefit will become clear over time that I'm not quite clear about. Fair enough. Well, January 2020, uh, all listeners will probably have a bit more experience of that. Finally, a case about asylum or sort of about asylum uh secretary of state for the home department and bk afghanistan 2019 ewca civ 1358 this was about an afghan man who had been a recruiter for the taliban and refused asylum on the basis of those activities he eventually did settle in the uk i think as a spouse rather than getting asylum and he was granted settlement but the home office put two and two together down the line, at the point he applied for citizenship, um, realised they'd refused him asylum and, and didn't like him and took his uh, indefinite leave to remain away in 2014. Uh, so I suppose the case more about uh, deception, as they charged him with, rather than asylum. Uh, he, They said he had failed to admit committing war crimes, even though the first tier tribunal had made that finding when refusing him asylum. And he succeeded in getting the upper tribunal and the Court of Appeal to look again at those factual findings of the first tier tribunal way back in 2004, which I think is quite unusual to get the, the appeal courts to, to reopen those findings of fact. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and it, this is one of those cases where the Home Office can't really be criticised for, for what they'd done. The, the problem was really with the, the really rubbish, um, weak findings that were made by the tribunal in 2004 on the basis of very little evidence at all. Uh, well, no evidence, basically, by the looks of things. Um, and it was good to see that the Court of Appeal showed some flexibility here. And sort of Devasilin is the you know, this sort of standard by which we um, we approach previous determinations, which are always the starting point, and there are certain sort of defined exceptions and so on. Um, this case didn't clearly fall into any of those, but um, the Court of Appeal showed sort of required flexibility and said, look, basically, I... You know, I'm paraphrasing somewhat here. I say basically the original determination was a load of rubbish. Um, you, know, you don't have to be uh, sort of um, bound by it now. Hmm. A helpful one to note. A, a couple of cases on costs to talk about, one of which is quite exciting. Uh, a little old, but it didn't crop up on Bailey until relatively recently. It's called Fakiri versus the Upper Tribunal, Immigration Asylum Chamber 2019, WCA Civ 151. The context is judicial judicial reviews against the upper tribunal's refusal to grant permission to appeal an immigration decision. I believe they're called CART judicial reviews in England and Wales and EBA judicial reviews in Scotland. The finding in this case about such JRs was that the Home Office can be fixed with costs in these cases, even though it's not formally the respondent in the proceedings, which government lawyers presumably will celebrate um what's the what's the reasoning behind that well before i say anything about that i have to pick you up on your use of the word um quite exciting um (laughs) (laughs) really um yeah for for a cost well it's an important qualify that um yeah it's a welcome decision and um i'm a bit 
unsure about what the actual costs recovery was in the end um, in this case but certainly it looked like some of the costs were going to be recovered from the home office um, but not all of them um, and that seems that seems right and proper and realistic because you know it is the home office that you're you're in effect fighting these cases against and the fact is you cannot get costs against um, the upper tribunal there is a less positive result for appellants in terms of costs in unlawful detention claims. Uh, Dick Nason covered a case called SANA 2019 EWCA Civ 1319. This was about where you win some of your unlawful detention claim, but not all of it. Uh, the Home Office wins some of the argument or most of the arguments. Um, and in that situation, what happens with allocation of costs? Usually they follow the results, but there's not a clear-cut winner in some of these cases, or at any rate, so the Home Office would say. The Court of Appeal, in this case, uh, the claimants had won compensation for four weeks of unlawful detention, but the uh, previous 20 months of detention was upheld. Uh, the High Court had said that the Mr. Sana should get 75% of his costs, but the Court of Appeal said no. Uh, no order for costs. Each side should pay its own reasonable yeah it, it's it's tricky i mean it'd be, it makes a huge difference to the lawyers concerned um whether costs get awarded because even where the case is legally aided um where costs are ordered um on what we call an inter partes basis then um the, the, the lawyers can recover their full commercial costs as opposed to the sort of really artificially low legal aid costs so it makes a really big difference um so the, the lawyers will be upset at the the outcome of this although hopefully it doesn't make too much difference to the the client themselves but there's and there's there's two sort of things that crossed my mind as i was reading through this one is that i'm not sure that that necessarily happened here but you have to be very careful not to overplead your cases essentially with unlawful detention and sort of throwing in the kitchen sink and pleading a really long period um where you don't think the chances of winning on it are that high but you might as well because you're bringing a case anyway um, that's not necessarily going to be the right approach um, in these kinds of situations. Um, you know, you really need to focus perhaps a bit harder on um, shorter but stronger um, periods of detention, or the, where the arguments are stronger. Or, you know, clever litigators sometimes make use of, of Part Thirty Six offers in these cases, where um, you know you can kind of um, manage your costs risks to some extent by by making an offer to the other side and, and seeing what happens um, so you, you need to be quite strategic about the way that you you, you litigate these if you want to have um, a, a good outcome i think helpful advice uh, it's worth worth emphasizing i suppose as well that nick and his write-up of this case does say that the judgment is very fact specific and there's no particularly new principles in it so not necessarily one to to panic over but no and that's that's true of all unlawful detention cases they they turn hugely on their facts um and it's you know and it's very hard from a judgment when you're reading a judgment it's very hard to know what's really going on because you know you you were reliant on reading just the judge's version which isn't necessarily you know the 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 most flattering or accurate version as far as the, the clients and their lawyers might be concerned Let's end for this month on a judgment about legal working. Uh, Okadina uh, and Chikale, Okadina and Chikale, 2019 EWCA Civ 1393. 
the result here was perhaps a bit counterintuitive. Basically, the result was if you are working illegally, you still have employment rights. So Miss Tikale was suing Miss Okadina for unfair dismissal and all sorts of other employmenty things. Miss Okadina tried to run an illegality defense, basically saying, look, you didn't have a visa when you were working for me, so you can't rely on workers' rights. Uh, but that didn't succeed. And Nicola Carter, who wrote up the case, says that lacking immigration status does not mean that an, that an employment contract is unenforceable. Interesting outcome, I think. Yeah, interesting outcome. Good case. Um, I mean, it, uh, we just talked about sort of fact-specific stuff a second ago. Well, this this one arguably is pretty fact-specific as well because it it seems from the judgment as if it was quite important that. Um, the worker concerned, the migrant concerned, hadn't known that she was working illegally. Um, and that's that sort of set of circumstances isn't necessarily going to come up that often. Um, although, you know, it, if people genuinely don't understand their immigration status, that could that's a you know, much wider category of cases that, that, that might arise, as opposed to the sort of quite narrow facts, this one where it's somebody who's literally being misled by the employer themselves. And it, it seems... It would be outrageous, really, if the employer was then able to get away with um, of sort of saying that the person has no rights, having put them in that situation themselves and, and deceived them about it as well. So, no, that's, it's, it's, um, it's definitely a positive case and good news, um, but I'm not that sure about the, the sort of wider application. Yeah, fair. It's, it seems like it just results in the particular circumstances, but yeah, maybe not a, a game-changing precedent. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It'd be, it'd be an interesting one to to follow because this kind of crossover between employment and immigration is always a bit, always a bit interesting and um, and, and and puzzling. I think for for quite a few of us as well. Absolutely. Okay, well, I think that wraps up for this month, and um, we're planning on being back quite shortly with an update for September. So hopefully, we'll see you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>